Please join me now in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're in a series of messages we're calling Real Church, and we've been considering a number of things, and I hope you've seen with me how relevant, how practical, even how timely these passages are as week by week we walk through. Now today, Paul's going to guide us back into the topic of division in the church, a topic he brought up first in chapter 1. Here we are now deep in 1 Corinthians deep into chapter 11 even, he's going to come back to the issue of divisions. But the division he's going to bring up in the church now is in the most unlikely of places, unlikely of times in the life of the church, divisions even around the Lord's Supper. And so let's take this on together now, verses 17 through 22 as we begin. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I hope you heard with me the strong displeasure of Paul toward these believers in Corinth. Back in verse 2 of this chapter, he affirmed them in some things. But coming now to verses 17 and 22, he says, I cannot affirm you in some other things here. And so the crux of the problem there in Corinth that Paul has in mind here is that in their times of worship, it had become something of a free-for-all. Every man, woman, and child essentially for him or herself. There was shocking individualism and disregard for others in the church. Paul said the outcome of your gatherings right now in Corinth is not for the good of people. It's actually for the worse. Nobody's better off when they come to worship now in Corinth because of how you're treating each other. Now people are worse off for having worshiped there. And so here for us, we want to consider this, that when we come together, we, we intend that we're going to be better off for having come to worship. That we're going to be strengthened in our faith because we gather together. We're going to be edified. We're going to be encouraged. But here's a passage that reminds us, if people are going to be blessed, and if God is going to be glorified, we must be unified in all we do as a church family. That's what we're aspiring to. But in Corinth, they were divided. Once again, Paul brings it up, the sin of division in the church. Again, that's verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. But verse 19, the very next thing he says is there is a good kind of division. It's just not the kind of division they have in Corinth. There is a good kind, verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And so we'll pause here a moment. There is a type of division that's absolutely necessary for a believer, for a church. So for instance, if you were in a, a very heretical church, an apostate church, a church that's left the gospel, left the teaching of God's word, then if you are a healthy Christian, you'd say, I can't stay there. It's, it's become so off, not, not on secondary preference issues, but in the primary things, what a church ought to be, they've left that, then I need to find another church. Maybe you have some relatives, 
Maybe you have some friends and they've stayed in a really bad church for a long time, no longer preaching the gospel in the church, no longer teaching the things of God. They're actually becoming more like the culture than God's word. And, and you think, why would you stay? And because it would be appropriate to leave that type of unhealthy church situation. And sometimes people will tell you, well, it's because my friends are here or this is the church where I grew up and all my family connections are here. But there's a, there's a good type of division here where you show that you're genuine by coming apart from that and being separate. We've seen it also in this very book of the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, remember we had that occasion where Paul said you must expel the immoral church member. There's a, there's a healthy type of division for the good of the church. But Paul here tells the Corinthians, but you don't have that good kind of division. You, you are actually divided in all kinds of sinful ways. And we've seen this throughout this letter to the Corinthians. We saw back in chapter one, this type of division, where he says there are people there who say, I'm of Paul, another group in the church, I'm of Apollos, another group, I'm of Cephas, and another group saying, well, we're just simply of Christ. And Paul had to rebuke those folks for that. Well, then we come to chapter six and we see another type of division in the church at Corinth. Maybe you remember it was the issue of lawsuits, plural, in the church at Corinth. There were believers taking other believers to court among unbelievers. And Paul said, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. You should be able to reconcile within the body. Then we came into chapter eight and there was the division between those who were the stronger brothers and the weaker brothers around the context of, can we eat meat sacrificed to idols? And that whole discussion. Then just last week, as we moved into chapter 11, we saw another division in the Corinthian church. And it was the division between the men and the women of the church, even between the husbands and the wives in their homes. And now we come a little bit deeper in chapter 11 and we see yet another division. And it's a division between the rich members and the poor members. And so rather than real fellowship in the church where people felt loved and wanted in the church, in the church at Corinth, people were divided up along the, along the lines of their likes, their wants, their preferences. And it was even showing up at their observance of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper that should have been used to help them see how one they are in Christ. Instead, they were divided even there. So let's pause here for application as well. Let's heed the warning of the danger of divisions in our church. Now, right now I'm speaking to a church that's very unified, even with our three different worship services, a strong sense that, that we are one. Uh, another expression of it, even in our business meetings, very harmonious. We all want to get along because we're rallying to the right things. But we do know we live in a culture that's more divided than many of us have seen in our entire lifetime. It's very concerning how divided we are as a, na as a nation. Something to pray about. You wonder how long can a nation hold together as divided as we are with such different, radically different worldviews here? And here we are living as a church in a world like this. We need to understand we need to preserve this unity that we have. And so with repetition on purpose, we talk about what it is that we rally to <clears throat> as a church to remain unified. And so we talk about three things. We are unified first in our shared love for Jesus. Isn't that true? That's why you got up this morning. You adore Jesus. You want to follow after Jesus. And you're not the only one here. We're all here for, for Jesus to worship him. So we're unified in our shared love for Jesus, but also in our shared confidence in the scriptures. 
So you and I have a high regard for the scriptures. We believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures. God's word is true. It's authoritative for us. We share that together. So shared love for Jesus, shared confidence in the Bible, and a shared commitment to the Great Commission. So you and I understand we're not here as a club. We have a mission. So we are making disciples here. We're sending disciples to the ends of the earth who will make disciples there, plant churches there. There's a mission. So if you think about it, if we're committed to loving Jesus together, confidence in the scripture together, a great commission together, it's very difficult then to battle over small preference issues. When you're captivated by these major things, our, our secondary preferences and opinions, those really just fall into place, not something that will jeopardize the unity of the church. But there was a problem in the church at Corinth. They'd lost their way on this. And it was happening even at the Lord's Supper. That's verse 20 again. But when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So it should have been an experience where they reaffirmed their oneness, but another occasion for these Corinthians, troubled as they were, to divide. Now, part of the problem was there in first century Corinth, they would have another meal attached to the Lord's Supper. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, when Jesus first gave us the Lord's Supper there in the upper room, it was the Passover meal. And so they broke bread before the meal, ate their meal, then they drank the cup at the end of the meal. Nothing wrong with that. Paul does not rebuke them for having a meal. But it was how they conducted the meal. This meal, sometimes in the churches of the first century, they called it a love feast. That's what you see in Jude, Jude verse 12. But in these meals, they were dividing themselves up in un unhealthy ways. One scholar said it this way. What bothered Paul about the Corinthian celebration was that the agape meal or love meal had become an occasion not marked by love for fellow Christians, but one of self-centered indulgence. In fact, that's what Paul talks about here in verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? I will not. So the specific problem appears to be this, that the wealthy members of the church of Corinth, when they would come for these love feasts, these agape meals, they would bring in their nice food and they would get there early and they would share their good rich people food with other wealthy members of the church, and they would eat that. When the poorer members would come in for the church meal, they would bring in their meager food, if any food at all. And so the church was divided in what should have been a time of great fellowship together. They were being selfish. So think about it. The church at Corinth was failing even at the potluck dinners, right? They should be getting that right. It evidently took Baptists to come along and show you how to eat at church, you're right. No, you think about this and it's, uh, it's really embarrassing that they couldn't even eat together without dividing up. So it was just a month or two ago, we had a beautiful potluck dinner here. Our kitchen committee did what they did. They provided some of the food and then you brought food and we had two rows of table down the middle there in MP1 of all kinds of food. And you notice we nailed it. Uh, there was no like, hey, rich people, you brought some really good stuff. And so all the rich people who brought the really good food, you guys eat that. And then the riffraff over here, you, you get to eat crackers and water. That's what you get to eat. That's craziness. But think about it. This is what they were doing in Corinth. When people were getting there and the wealthy people were grouping up and eating their sumptuous food together and neglecting and other people, well, you go eat your sorry food that you brought. That's exactly what they're doing. And Paul rebukes them 
for that. So Paul says, look, you, if you want to have a party, you just do that at home. And you can invite people there. Even there, he would tell them not to show favoritism like that. But he's saying in the church, we are a family. And everybody who's believed in Christ is welcome here. Everybody should be included. Everybody should be valued here. We are one in Christ. And so as we think about ourselves as a church, well, how do we avoid segmenting ourselves from each other in the church? In a divided culture like we live in, how do we avoid that creeping into here? Well, I think the key word is intentionality. You and I should look for ways to include other people in our circle of friends and connections in the life of the church. I know some of us are shy. Some of us are tired when we roll in here, but we have to push outside of ourselves, beyond ourselves to love other people, to spend time with them. So I think it's absolutely normal that when we come here, some of you have been members here a long time. And so you, you look forward to seeing your dearest friends on the planet when you come here. And we would never take that from you. Absolutely. See those people that are life-giving to you. But while enjoying that beautiful fellowship with the people you've known best for a long time, keep that heart open to, to really welcome other people into those connections that you enjoy. There are people who visit the church every week. And what are they looking for? Because they could worship online, they, they could watch TV perhaps, but they're looking for connections and we want to be a church that's very intentional. No matter what your background is, if you love Jesus with us or you're coming to know Jesus with us, we want you here. And so we're going to have to be very intentional to do that. We want to worship together. We want to grow together in these life groups. We want to serve the Lord together. That's a great place to get to meet some other people. Well, in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, we have another case in the Bible where we're told not to show favoritism. Perhaps you've heard this before. James 2, 1 and following. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you then not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those that are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. If we just summarize that, James is saying you can't think of anybody as a VIP in the church. There should be no VIP mentality in the church. Let me ask you, have you ever been somewhere and they seat you in the VIP section? I can think of one time in my life where I was officially sat in the VIP section. And I don't mean to brag. It was actually in the VVIP section. And it was in North India years ago. I was making one of my first trips into India. And I was visiting with some people that were serving there. And meeting some uh, believers there from India. And so we were in this northern city. And just walking around. Prayer walking. Getting familiar with that part of North India. And it was the time of Durga Puja. And puja means worship. It was a time of this, this Durga, one of the goddesses. It was a big celebration in this goddess's honor. 
And so again, we're prayer walking, walking around, and it was becoming evening, and they were going to have this big telling of one of their uh, mythologies, and they were going to do fireworks. And one of the Indian brothers with us, he said, you know, we could go to this. And we're like, you know, we're open for anything as we're walking around. And so he goes over to the gatekeepers to the VVIP section. So there's a VIP section over here, but then there's VVIP. I've never even heard of that. So I guess very, very important persons. I thought, I don't belong in there, but, but the Indian brother, he's going to check it out. So I just watch it from a distance and he's talking to the gatekeepers. He motions over to us over here, this group of foreigners. Then he motions back here. Next thing I know, they're waving us in to the VVIP section. And so we're now seated very close and we're watching everything happen. And it's all, it's all fine. And I'm able to pray for people until the fireworks started. And we were much too close to the fireworks and fires raining down from the sky. And I'm no longer praying for Hindus to come to Christ. I'm praying for safety here. I told, I told the guys with me, I've been to many fireworks displays. I've never been in a fireworks display. Live to tell about it. Well, listen, in the life of the church, we have no such section as VIP or something as silly as VVIP here. Only one person that's VIP here, and it's Jesus. And the rest of us are just glad to be in his family. We're overjoyed just to be here. So, so what would be the remedy for divisions in the church? How, how would you then eradicate the idea that some people are more important than other people in the church? Well, the remedy is the Lord's Supper. It's one of the remedies God's given us is the Lord's Supper. And that's the very place where the Corinthians were getting things mixed up. Here, here what Paul, here's what Paul tells us here. Notice verse 23 and following. In the context of all this division, he now talks about the Lord's Supper that we hear once a month together. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul draws this divided church back to the meaning of, of the Lord's Supper. And this is important for us too. Anything you do with some regularity, you should remind yourself, now, why do I do this? Lest it become something we just do by rote and there's no meaning left in it. Here, here first century court, they'd already lost sight of what the Lord's Supper was about. It can happen to us as well. So let's remind ourselves, what's it all about? The Lord's Supper, when we take that bread and when we take the cup, it's all about Jesus. It's all about his amazing sacrifice for us. We're remembering the body of Jesus given in sacrifice for us. We're, rem we're reminding ourselves of the blood of Jesus. Imagine it. The blood of Jesus shed for us. So coming up in November, usually the first Sunday of the month, we'll take the Lord's Supper together for believers. And when we do this next time, would you make sure that you are remembering the death of Jesus for you? And you'll know you're remembering well when you not only remember with your mind, but you're feeling it. You're, you're feeling the reality of it. I hope next time we do the Lord's Supper, you're thinking about, you're forcing your mind back that, oh, oh, Jesus, I'm remembering. I'm remembering that crown of thorns that you allowed to be pressed down into your scalp and the blood running down. I'm remembering the beatings that you endured and people spitting at you. I'm, I'm remembering Jesus. 
And I'm remembering you dying on a cross and agonizing over hours as you poured out your life for my sin. And I'm remembering, Lord, your resurrection. You know you're remembering well when, when you're affected by that remembrance. When we're at the Lord's table, it's about Jesus. It's about his sacrifice. It's also a reminder for us that we all have needed his mercy. So the Lord's Supper is not about any of our status other than the status that you and I are sinners. And we needed a sinless one to rescue us and only Jesus could do it. We would stand condemned if it were not for Christ. And so the cross is the remedy for all of us. And so the Lord's Supper is the last place anybody would ever in their right mind be thinking about their status. Again, only one VIP, only one VVIP, it is Jesus. And at the Lord's table, we are reminded we are in his presence, we're humbled, and we're overjoyed in him. And by the way, it's true also of the other ordinance of the church, baptism. When somebody's baptized here, we love it when people are baptized here behind that screen, we have that pool, and, and uh, we love that. And it's not that a person's getting baptized over and over again. As a believer, you get baptized by immersion. That's the biblical picture. And what a beautiful picture it is. And it makes all of us think again about Christ. We remember that, yeah, I was once baptized into the body of Christ. I too turned from my sins. I trusted in Jesus. My old life is buried and gone and I'm raised to walk in newness of life with Christ. It's another picture of oneness for us, not of division when we take part in these ordinances. We are one in our faith and love for Jesus. The Lord's Supper, Paul tells you, it helps you remember how you relate to God and who you are in him and who you are with the others in Christ. But then did you notice in the text, or if you've read it before, there's a warning here about the Lord's Supper. And I've never been able to get past this. I've never gotten over what we're about to read next. Hear it with me, verses 27 through 30, 32. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Key words here, you probably noticed the words unworthy manner. So what the Corinthians were doing when they were coming to the table, taking this bread, taking this cup, they were doing this in a way that was wrong, in a way that was totally inappropriate. It was egregious what they were doing, and they were making themselves worthy of God's judgment. So how bad was it? Look at the verses again. Look at verse 22. It makes you gulp when you read these. That the Corinthians and the way they were handling the Lord's Supper and this meal they had attached to it, they were despising the church of God. That's strong wording. Then verse 27, we read this, that they were guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So what they were doing in sinning at the Lord's table was not trivial. They were sinning against the very blood and body of Christ, symbolized in that bread and in that juice. They were sinning against and putting themselves in league with those who were responsible for the death of Christ. And so what were the consequences there? Paul mentions the consequences. This also makes you gulp when you hear it. They were judged. 
They were disciplined, not judged in the sense of condemned, because that doesn't happen to believers, but God certainly does discipline those that he loves. And Paul says here, that, um, God's going to discipline you that you would not be condemned with the rest. And so Paul here then helps the Corinthians see a connection. Apparently, there were many who were sick in the church. There were many who were weak. Some, he says, have died. And Paul, as the Spirit of God guides him to write, lets him know there's a connection you're wondering about all that sickness that you have in the church there in Corinth. It's because God is disciplining you. And that has always caught my attention. Since I first read this as a new believer in high school, I've never taken the Lord's Supper without thinking of that. This is that right sense of fear of God. I know he loves me. I know I won't perish in my sins. Jesus has already cleansed all my sin. We're going to sing in just a moment about how we're whiter than snow uh, in our hearts because Jesus has forgiven us. I know that. But he does discipline those he loves. This is, a, this is a letter to a church. And he says, some of you, no, he says, many of you are ill. Many of you are weak. And some of you have died. So we dare not come and take the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. And so this is what this has looked like in my life, especially in those early years. You know, because throughout your whole life, you're battling against various sins. And, and you're winning a lot. And you lose sometimes in these battles against sin. But I remember in these struggles already fearing God, I don't want to be stubborn in any sin. But then here comes the Lord's Supper. It's another, another checkpoint in my spiritual life. And you know, I, I know I can't bring any unconfessed sin into the Lord's Supper. I know I can't take that bread and that cup in a way where I'm, well, I'm not really sorry for my sins. I really like my sins. I'm not intending to repent of that. So in my mind, after reading this, oh, there's just no way I can be unrepentant and come to the Lord's table. Just another great time in life to go, Lord, I've laid it all down, totally surrendered. Thank you for your forgiveness for my sins. I want to, I want to follow you. And so such a, such a key time, such a key rhythm in our spiritual lives. Now, some people can go too far and they can say, well, I'll never be worthy of the Lord's Supper. How could I ever worship God? Why am I even here? So I'll just never take the Lord's Supper again. That would be misusing this because isn't the Lord's Supper a reminder that you have a Savior? Here's Jesus giving his body and blood to cleanse you of your sins. So, so the question might come to how then me, how can me as a sinner partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy way? Is there any way to do that? Yes, yes. It's, it's every time you come to the Lord's Supper, do what you've been doing every day of the week up then. When, when you're aware of a sin in your life, you, you then are confessing that to God. Lord, I, I agree with you that I've been wrong. And I'm, I'm turning away from that. Thank you for forgiveness. I'm turning away from that. And that's the posture of a person who now, now can come to the Lord's table in a worthy way. Unworthy is I'm not sorry. I'm not changing. And I'm just going to play the church game. And I'm just going to take the bread and the cup. That is dangerous to do, according to the Apostle Paul. But if you're genuinely sorry for your sin, you want the Lord's forgiveness. And with his help, you want to turn away from those sins, by all means, partake. And here's the good news. And this is why I give you moments every time we do this as a church. I give you some moments for personal examination, as the scripture tells us to do. So that you in those moments, you can do along with me, because that's what I'm doing up here. In fact, I have a head start even at home. I know, okay, Lord's Supper. Lord, is there anything, is there anything in me that I haven't confessed or repented of? Is there anything I'm missing? Are there any blind spots? But on Sundays, you can join me in that. Lord, show me anything I'm missing. And if he shows you something, here's how you become worthy to take the Lord's Supper. Oh, Lord, thank you for showing me that. I agree with you. That's wrong. I turn away from that, that I might walk with you clean. And yes, enjoy this remembrance that I have a Savior in you. Verse 28 says, you should examine yourself before you take the bread and the cup. 
Verse 31 says you should discern the body. What does that mean? I believe in the context here is he's talking about this trouble, these divisions in the body, the church family. He's saying you should examine your relationships in the body. So personal reflection, personal examination, asking God to show you you so that you can adjust and align yourself with him in repentance. But also before you take the Lord's Supper, it's a good chance to go, how am I doing in the body of believers? Am I at odds with the people, God's people in the church? Anything I need to make right with others in the life of the church? Do you remember back in chapter 10, verse 16? We read this, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so we want to discern the body right. I'm a part of this body, God's body, the body of Christ. Therefore, I should examine myself and I should celebrate this Lord's Supper. But then there was this matter, a practical issue that they had here, because again, they were practicing this with another meal attached to it. So Paul says this in verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give direction when I come. So notice here, Paul does not tell them, stop having those other meals. He just says, no, it's fine to have that meal, but wait for one another. Don't have yourselves divided up between rich and poor and don't run ahead of other people. Now, there have been churches through the years in our culture that have misapplied this very good passage. So this just simply says, wait for each other. Some people, though, get up, caught up on the idea, well, if you're hungry, eat at home. And they've taken that to mean you shouldn't ever eat at church. In fact, uh, this is true in some of the country churches around. Uh, I used to pastor in Alabama years ago, and our church did have an attached fellowship hall. But a lot of the country churches around our country church, they had a detached fellowship hall because they thought you shouldn't eat at church, misapplying this passage. Now, they misunderstood a couple of things. First of all, they didn't have church buildings in the time that Paul wrote this. So there's no church building that you would worry about. They met it house to house or in other places. There wasn't a church building. So the issue wasn't about eating with God's people. And it's also misunderstanding. Even if you have a detached fellowship hall, you can still be quite divided if you go have a meal in a detached building. So misunderstanding of this passage. In fact, we had a sweet man in the church where I pastored years ago that I think he voted against it when they built the building and had the attached fellowship hall because he thought, I don't want to disobey scripture. You should eat at home. And so whenever, sadly, whenever the church had a fellowship meal in the fellowship hall, he would miss out on that. And I remember thinking, ah, I wish, I wish he understood. I loved his sincerity, but he misapplied the passage. It's not, not the point at all. Point here Paul makes is this, you should wait on one another. You should honor one another when you get together. You should receive each other. Don't be divided up at times like this. You should be welcoming to everybody in the church who comes for this. Share in the meal. Remember the purpose of the meal, particularly when you come back to the bread and the cup, thinking on Christ. So what have we seen in this passage today? How do we apply this to ourselves? Well, we could talk about this. First of all, we know that we are to have love and respect for each other in the church. Everybody, everybody in the church should know that they are loved and respected. That's essential for us to be a healthy church. It's also essential here that we are to love one another in the church. It wouldn't be possible to be healthy and not see ourselves as one body, one body united in Christ, our Savior. So some action step for us before we go. First of all, love one another. You have to. 
not as a slogan, but think in practical ways, how do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ in this local fellowship? We should also love and honor every member, not just our own family members and our close friends. As we said earlier, we love that we can see the people we we miss and know the best, but we want to be very intentional to include other people into our fellowship. We should initiate relationships with people that maybe are different from us. And we should avoid cliques in the church. So we are to love people well, but also be very intentional of including other people. And then we come to the Lord's Supper, and we should indeed examine ourselves every time before we take it. And we should examine our church relationships to make sure they are right at the same time. If you're here today and you're kind of new to church and maybe, maybe new to us here, we want you to know that we want you here. We recognize as members of this church that this really isn't our church. This is the Lord's church, and we're just happy to be members of his church. We're an expression of his family, and so we, on behalf of him, say we welcome you into this family. We would never dream of keeping you out. If you love Jesus, you want to follow Jesus as the Lord of your life, then you are welcome to become one of us. But how do you do that? Well, your first move is to embrace Jesus as your Savior. You've heard us read passages that talk about the body and the blood of Jesus. It's essential that you know Jesus, the one who gave his body and blood for you. Jesus left heaven. He is the only one who's ever lived perfectly on the earth. He lived perfectly. He loved, he taught, he healed people. But the mission was to go to the cross where he would give his body and blood to atone for your sins and for my sins, for the sins of the whole world. And the promise of scripture is this. If you will turn from your sins and you will believe in Jesus Christ, put your confidence in Jesus, then you'll be righteous in the sight of God. Your faith will be credited to you as righteousness. You'll be whiter than snow in the sight of God, all because you have come into union with Jesus. So today your move would be to do that. Lord, I see my sinfulness. I want you to forgive me of my sins. I want you to be the savior of my life now and forevermore. I give myself to you. Oh, you'll then be in the family of God. And then we want you in this family of God as well. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the good news that just reverberates throughout the scriptures. Here, another passage where we, were had, we had the opportunity to dwell on the cross, where you displayed your amazing love toward us. We're still amazed by it. Lord, help us not just to know it intellectually. We do want that. But Lord, help us to, to feel and experience just how great your love is. Lord, we, we do have this ongoing battle with sin. Help us, Lord, to battle and win in the power of your spirit, taking the way of escape that we read about back in chapter 10. Lord, that we can be a holy people for you. Lord, we want every aspect of worship to be done in a way worthy of you. So thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for the new life you offer. And Lord, my prayer is today that you will save some men, some women, some young people today as they turn from sin and trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.